Hi, thanks for coming to our podcast today. We're going to be talking to Peter and Angie today um, about autism spectrum disorder. Um, this is, again, our podcast, Breaking the Third Wall Through Music. Thank you for coming to the second episode. I'm really excited to have these two wonderful people on, um, you know, because we got to keep having these conversations because other people just won't. Um, so, Peter and Angie, if you'd like to introduce yourself or tell whatever it is that you would like to as an introduction. Um, you want to go first, or do you want? Me you can to go, go first. Oh, okay. Uh, um, <laughs> hi, I'm Peter. Um, I'm 21 years old, and I'm a music composition major at the Crane School of Music at SUNY Potsdam. Um, I don't know. I play piano, play trumpet, sing a bunch. I'm. I don't know. I try to write music and hope it sounds good. I I don't really know what else to say. <laughs> Okay, my name's Angie. I'm 19 years old and I'm a sophomore at the Crane School of Music at SUNY Potsdam. And I study arts management and music business with a concentration in violin and music technology. Um, I guess that's it. I like playing with sound. Like playing with sound. Yeah, I like um. playing with sound. Okay, let's see. Um, I don't know. Topic, um, <laughs> autism and music. Yes. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll like take it the like, um, you know, I was diagnosed in fourth grade with um, Asperger's, which no longer exists. Fun fact, a bunch of different autism spectrum disorders were grandfathered in together when the DSM-5 was released to make it easier to get resources in schools that like to only give certain forms certain things when really they, they all needed pretty similar things just in different amounts. Um, it's funny because when I was first getting into music, it wasn't really an issue because pianists, we tend to pretty much be solo for a good portion of our upbringing. So it was an issue in different regards. Like I would, I have executive dysfunction as part of um, everything that's going on up here and what that and it manifests in different ways for different people but it essentially boils down to your brain is unable to handle certain types of task management and processing in my case it is forcing myself to do things that I know that I need to do but do not particularly wish to at that moment in time like, it's like procrastination, but except, like, I can literally, like, sit down, minimize every distraction, and if my brain just says no, I can just, I can stare at a blank piece of paper with ideas in my head for what to write down and be unable to move the pencil to the paper, or, like, I don't know. So that was tough. It made practicing weird, but I loved music a lot, and I start, I started out of my own curiosity, like, I started by trying to play the piano downstairs and after things were sounding somewhat recognizable was when we started lessons. But it definitely impacted my work ethic more than it impacted my ability to actually like make the music that I knew how to make at the time, if you get what I'm saying. 
I don't know, the social aspect of being on the spectrum didn't really get to me until I started playing trumpet. Because when I started learning trumpet, that was through school. It was much more communal. There were other people involved. When you can't make eye contact, it's really hard to follow a conductor. <laughs> like, so suddenly, um, we also had practice schedules. And they were worried more about um, consistency than about amount of time. So if they saw that I played, like, for a few hours, like, a couple days a week, but not 30 minutes, seven days a week, they were kind of like, are you sure you want to be doing this? And I don't know, it was just different having to kind of be in a room with other people and kind of not being in control of the music, so to speak. So that was definitely difficult. Um, do you, I, I feel like I've been talking a while. Um, Angie? That's all good. I'll say something. So um, I was diagnosed in, I actually don't really know when I was diagnosed because I didn't really find out until I was 18. But that's another part of the story. But I think I was diagnosed around second, third grade. So pretty early, which is very uncommon for a girl, which I could talk about later. So when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed with two types, Asperger's and uh, pervasive de developmental disorder, which both uh, led to uh, ASD, autism spectrum disorder, which is now what's called. Um, so I was diagnosed pretty early, but I still uh, started playing my instrument, like how Peter was saying. I started through school, though, but I first got it as a gift, and it was my first hyperfocus when I was five years old. And I would never let go of it. I would always play it when I got really stressed, which was a lot as a kid. And I felt bad for my parents because I wasn't good when I was five years old. I was just making noise. <laughs> but so when I turned um, in third grade, I ended up playing it at school and we got to pick our instruments. I picked violin and I was in an orchestra and I had like lessons through the school and all that. And that's when I first started noticing the social hardships of music and having autism, even though I didn't really know what it was. I just felt like I was different and it was really hard to fit in because I couldn't make eye contact. And I also, couldn't practice every day, but when I practiced, I practiced for longer periods of time. That's a really big one. <laughs> so um, that was very difficult, especially at a young age. And I still get those complications now. When I practice, I'd rather practice for like over two hours rather than um, an hour every day, seven days a week. Honestly, I get that. Um, you brought up hyperfocus and um... I feel like we should probably explain that because I'm not sure if everyone yeah. will know what that is. Um, Do you want to explain it? Sure. Um, I have a bunch of different hyperfocuses, which are hyperfoci would probably be the correct, I don't know. I have a bunch of them, but essentially what they are is your brain like fixates on certain things that you like to like an ext extremely obsessive 
and I don't know, crazy extent. Not to say crazy, but you get what I'm saying. It's like, essentially, like you might not be able to stop thinking about it for more than five minutes at a time, or you might go through phases where it is all that you think about, but then you don't even think about it for, like you'll think about it and nothing else for a few weeks, a month, whatever. And then a new thing kind of comes in and takes over. And a lot of times what that results in is um, I'm part of like, I'm actually part of a couple um, online communities related to autism spectrum disorder, Asperger's, et cetera. And there's a common meme in most of them where it's like, my history, um, my history teacher telling me one month that I should be a historian and the next month asking why I don't apply myself. <laughs> like, you kind of bounce, you kind of bounce through the things that interest you and that makes things difficult. Also, I find with the practicing, I do the same thing. I've had days where I've practiced for eight hours straight and only realized eight hours passed when suddenly I was extremely thirsty and needed to go to the bathroom. Like when you're absorbed in one of these hyper, like hyper-focused related things, which by the way, several other conditions also have it. ADHD has it too. Um, I know there are others, but I can't think of them off the top of my head. Um, when you're absorbed in one of them, it's like the entire world fades away and the only thing that exists is you and the thing. And part of the problem for me is um, I'm not diagnosed yet with this, but my therapist and I have been talking about the possibility that I might have some kind of like avoidant restrictive issues when it comes to, and the issue with that is that it kind of also can prevent us from taking care of our bodies correctly when we're absorbed in something. Like I remember I once was writing a piece and I went into a practice room, emerged eight hours later but you're so tired and you're so burnt out that the next day you don't even want to look at the thing that you're working on. And that's part of the issue with when you let it go too far. But that's not to say hyperfocus is a bad thing. It can often be good, especially when the thing you're trying to pursue is related to it. But it can kind of be a double-edged sword. It allows you to do these insane feats of, I never thought that I could write the, I never thought that I could write a 10 page paper in two hours whatever, like, oh, the paper's not due till next week and it's done already. And then you can just like, whatever, proofread it. I don't know. At the same time, it's just really tough to navigate tasks that you are required to do because they're often not the tasks that you wish you were doing. And when you have a separate thing in your head that's kind of going like, hey, um, this isn't, Rubik's Cube speed solving <laughs> while you're trying to like fill out your FAFSA is not the most fun experience. <laughs> yeah, okay. I get Sorry, that. I too. It's all good. Um, because I'm probably gonna ramble for a little bit. <laughs> so, um, I forgot what I was gonna say. So, actually, I have other diagnoses. I think that's the right word. Um, and my diagnoses are uh, uh, after like autism, it's anxiety, depression, OCD. And then I have like a bunch of body ones, like uh, body dysmorphia, um, um, almost diagnosed eating disorder. <laughs> and uh, did I say OCD already? I think I did. 
Um, so all those are based on different fixations for me. And the biggest, the issue with my fixations is once I get to it, like Peter was saying before, I just, if I am like fixating a violin, I sometimes just forget about it and then I'll come to back to it later. And that's the issue with like trying to have music as like a career is I sometimes just don't want to practice anymore or it like hurts to practice, like it hurts my brain and I just need a break. And fixations uh, for me have more negative impacts on me and less than positive because I've been fixating too much on different things and trying to get control. For me, control is a big issue because I want control in everything I do and trying to and trying to control what I am and how people perceive me because for me the old big issue with me having autism and trying to play an instrument is trying to get control of trying to be good trying to be better and being the best I can and trying not to be judged by others because sometimes I act different so I am not should we say it's not a disorder I don't like that word at all I feel like it's another ability, if that's a better word for it. Because um, I feel like I can be better, but also there's other things that can be negative for it. If you want to expand on that, Peter. Um, yeah, for me, control issues are also a very big thing. Um, and I was lucky enough when I was younger to work with people that managed to figure out how to navigate that. Not as much in school, though I certainly did have some great, like, special ed teachers and whatever, but my piano teacher growing up kind of let me control a lot of what we did, how we did it, etc. But I find outside of people who are willing to work with and know how to work with these kind of issues, it really can send you down a dark path. I mean, I was told the same day that I got my diagnosis that I could have also been diagnosed with three other things, but it would not have been wise to do so because um, my school district would have wanted certain steps to happen such a, like, they would have tried to push medication on me for anxiety and depression. The issue is that anxiety meds tend not to be the best thing to they tend not to be the best for you if you take them through puberty. So they decided to forego the diagnosis for anxiety, depression, and OCD when I was younger to make it easier for me to finish school. And I think at the time that was definitely a good move. But this need for control, for me, it manifests in, I think, I don't know how to put this, some really insane sounding, but just drastic ways. I can't think of a word that doesn't have a negative connotation to use to describe myself, and that might be reflective on self-image. I don't know, but... I agree with this. That's how I, I feel, my, too. Yeah. yeah. When I got my diagnosis, they, they knew for years that I could have been diagnosed with it, but they didn't give it to me until they found out that there had been some really dark things in my life, and they wanted to help me learn about myself as much as everyone else who was in my life. And it's like, my OCD tends to manifest as 
as like cliche as this is for someone with Asperger's, like a need for homeostasis or a need for control. Like I'm not, even though it looks relatively organized right now, I spent probably an hour and a half cleaning this room before um, I did this. It's, I'm not like one of those like stereotypical, like neat freak, oh, so OCD kind of people. For me, it's, there must be essentially bodily symmetry in all five senses. We're talking a stuffy nose, a stuffy nose can give me a panic attack because I can smell more out of one side of my face than the other. And that is not fun. As a result, I've learned, and like as a result, I've learned that to maintain some sense of control, I need to always carry some kind of fidget or in this case, it's being used as what's known as a stim or like stimulant, stimulation, whatever. Um, I always need to essentially have something with me that I can kind of control some of my sensory experience. And sometimes like a really tough adjustment for me because I have major sensory issues on top of everything is that the practice rooms in Crane can drive me crazy. And I, and I see it from the faces on screen that must be a similar story. I actually, oh, where are they? Um, I have a set of AirPods just to have something small that I can carry with me that doesn't have a wire that can brush up against me, whatever. They're not the best sounding. They don't sound horrible though. And a lot of times, yeah, I will just put on white noise in the, in the background while I practice so I don't need to hear the other people practicing. Like my go-to, I kind of cringe at it every time I bring it up. My go-to is TV static. And I have a Spotify playlist that is just different white noise that I like, different types of white noise that I like. And I'll just put one on repeat because I have premium. <laughs> and just, because, you know, with the AirPods, they're not noise canceling, at least the regular version, the pro ones are. So it isn't like they'll block out any of my practice. I can hear my instrument just fine. It blocks out. It essentially is kind of like people who sleep with a white noise machine. It essentially just controls the background noise because there's always going to be some there. Um, I don't know though. I've kind of talked a lot. You want to put in your two cents? Okay. So you were talking about first about like OCD and how you control my big control thing. I don't want to sound negative or anything, but uh, my big control is with what I eat and my OCD is around food. And that's a big thing for girls with OCD too. My is I have safe foods, I have fear foods, and there's foods that if I see on my plate, I will have a outburst. And I've had these outbursts since I was, I think the earliest memory I can have is when I was five years old. If there was a lettuce on my plate at any restaurant, I would freak out and I would almost get kicked out. It was that bad. I would almost even get violent. It's just because of the one little thing. And it's also with mushrooms. Lettuce and mushrooms are my biggest fears. For no reason. It is all due to my OCD and like with all of that. So when I got older, it all translated to body issues and stuff like that. But also, uh, 
if I go to, I forgot what Peter was talking about before, I'm sorry, uh, like with practicing and stuff, um, I have an issue being 100% focused in the practice rooms at Crane because there are just so many distractions. Like for me, the little like areas in the walls distract me and I'll just like brush my finger around on them for like 10 minutes straight and get distracted. <laughs> or like even in the Noel South practice rooms because of the pandemic and stuff, I just get distracted from like the squirrels outside on the windows, on the trees. And I will stare at the squirrels for an hour and a half straight and forget that time has gone by. This has happened like five times since I've been here. I spent an hour just playing in one of the merit hall classrooms that or like offices or whatever it is because they're big echoey rooms just like I spent a full hour at one point after one of my piano lessons just experimenting with the reverb in the room just like listening to exactly how the sound bounces around like comes this way out of the piano off that wall just like I've been doing that with violin mutes because you're not supposed to practice in the dorms at all but sometimes I do if I have to because of like uh, sensory stuff it's easier to practice in my own room yeah so um in my dorm I've been experimenting with different sounds and mutes because violins have like different mutes so there's just like a metal mute then there's a plastic mute that goes over like the whole bridge and then there's little plastic mutes then there's you can also use dollar bills so i've been just experimenting with like all those different things because I, me, i'm a trumpet player i know the mute scenario <laughs> yeah when you experiment with mutes it can take up to three hours <laughs> and i was supposed to be practicing a piece for my lesson oh no <laughs> and this has just been going on it was really funny after thinking about it but and you were also talking about stim toys and stuff. Uh, my big ones are, uh, yeah, I'm playing with one too right now. <laughs> and uh, mine are like stress balls and slime and kinetic sand are my big ones. They, every time I, and um, I always go into like Walmart saying, I'm only going to get a few things. And then I always end up with like a little kid's toy. I always end up in the kid's section getting like a little toy to play with in like the car ride home. Or, like, anything like that. Another one of my uh, bad, uh, what's it called, uh, fixations is, like, the kids' toys. Uh, like, I always get a set of Pokemon, every t Pokemon cards every time I go just to play with them and look at what I get. It sounds like, I sound like such a little, a little boy, but I'm not. I'm just a grown girl with autism that just fixates on the randomest stuff. Oh, I need to... You reminded me, um, I need to try to rebuild the Magic the Gathering deck that was half stolen. I don't know how to describe it. Um, my friend found it when I lost it, and like, um, then it was kind of stolen by their ex when they left them. So like, I don't blame Aww. anyone, but it's like, you just reminded me I need to rebuild my Magic the Gathering decks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like playing yeah. with Pokemon decks when I'm like very overstimulated. It just helps because I just like focus on one little thing that I like doing. And it doesn't yeah. even need to be fixated on music. It's just whatever I have. And sometimes the music stresses me out and sometimes other stuff stresses me out. But I always can just listen to violin music and it calms yeah. me down. 
that's like another thing with music and autism. It always helps you relax because just like what you're used to. Even it could be just me having to play hot cross buns for like 10 times to calm down. Like that happens sometimes. Or when I was little, uh, I used to sing happy birthday to myself. This is like at age like five, three, three to five years old. I was in my bed always singing happy birthday to myself until I got woken up because it just calms me down, music. And I still sing now, and it's just a very calming thing for me. That's why I never wanted to go into it, because it's just calming. Yeah, for me, I sing a lot. Um, Anyone who knows me has probably um, heard me doing, like, a full scat solo, because just, like, walking through the halls. um, I don't know. I'm... I'm obsessed with jazz, and I just, I don't know, vocal jazz is one of my favorite things outside of the music that I'm studying, so for me, it's just like, I'll be walking through the halls, and sometimes someone will even recognize the tune that I'm trying to sing over. Peter, Um, didn't I meet you through vocal jazz? Yeah! Yeah! Yeah, we did! Yeah, and then of course course the pandemic happened and the jazz choir didn't get like off the ground but but it was so much fun oh i know yeah we need to start that um anyone in crane who wants to join hit me up um run me on facebook whatever <laughs> one thing though that i want to bring up because um i know tyler talked about this in his thing and i um i might need some help brainstorming some things but how would you say is a good way to try to teach music, especially to a beginner with autism, who like is really interested in it, but has no idea what, like someone who like likes it, but needs guidance because sorry, if they don't like it, you're not gonna get very far with them. That's something that we can be sure of, but. I've actually taught a girl with a disability. She had dyslexia. And it was very similar to how I would teach somebody with autism because I was going into it trying to uh, teach her like the foundations and uh, what teachers should know if they don't have any disabilities is to be patient. You just need to be as patient as you can because it's going to be hard. It's going to be harder to learn. You might have to go back to some things. With all my teachers I've had in the past, they got mad at me for get, for forgetting everything and like calling me like grandma, which is actually really funny. And it's one of my favorite nicknames. But the thing is, you just have to be patient and like understand uh, that people with disabilities can forget things easily. Like I, if I, some things go in one ear and out right the other ear and I have to get it taught and like told to me like multiple times. And it can be frustrating, but you have to be patient and be calm and try to go about it slower, but not too slow, or people will just get angry and frustrated. I actually like to talk now because I do have a degree in music education. I'm finishing my degree. Um, I'm also, I have dyslexia. I, I don't have autism, but I, I do understand what it's like to be an individual with a disability to participate in music. But, um, from the music ed standpoint, it's like you you like Andrew said, you have to be really 
patient with them. And it's not just that you, you really have to give them enough things that they're interested in. Like if you show that they show like specific interest in one thing, give them a bigger scope of it. And then once they've accomplished that, add something new and different that's similar to it. So it's basically like building off of their schema and their interest and making their interest even bigger in that specific concentrated area. I think it's also interesting because like earlier you, you guys were talking about like hyper focus. I think that that's like the perfect time to have that individual hyper focus on the thing that they're interested in and then be like hey why don't you try this new thing that's really similar you might really like it it might be really interesting um like i specifically when i was doing observation hours i had to um there was just child that had autism and he was so good at keeping up with the class like he you could tell that he loved being there he had a really good like sense of like aural skills and he really enjoyed being in music class and dancing and all that other fun stuff but it was like um we we also gave him parts to where like in some of the songs we would allow him to have a little bit of control which is interesting because you guys brought that up i think that that's another thing is like when they're participating in music i think that like giving them a little bit of control and something that they're interested in will keep them interested and then you can keep going from there i think actually that's kind of how i learned um as i said i started kind of playing piano by just by myself at home and um i ended up with a teacher who he's mostly a jazz pianist he also has really good classical chops um and he's an insane composer with like an incredibly good grasp on like theory oral skills etc so i kind of and you know so like i kind of learned more through theory and stuff than a lot of other people starting at around the same time as i did would have learned and Another thing is that being a jazz player, he stressed improvisation a lot, which was nice because that's kind of how I taught myself. I kind of taught myself through improv. If I couldn't transcribe the part, if I couldn't transcribe the like accompaniment to the thing that I was trying to learn, I would make one up kind of thing. And I feel like I probably wouldn't be a composer if it weren't for his guidance, just because I would come in in like elementary school with these tiny like little tunes and he wouldn't just be like oh that's great that's whatever that's cute he would like give the nine-year-old critique on the piece and be like well look you should really like he kind of almost treat like he treated my my ideas as if i were an adult but he also like was incredibly patient with me was completely fine with the fact that I couldn't read music until seventh grade and managed to teach me entirely through an oral skills framework. I learned an entire Mozart sonata by watching his hands and by transcribing it at one point. Like, I, I don't know, it was quite a time, but one thing that you should also keep in mind is that um, 
when teaching people with autism, they found breaks for anyone are really important, but they're especially important for people on the spectrum. Like there are two schools of thought. There is the 17 minutes on, three minutes off, also known as the 15 and five, where essentially you work for 15 to 17 minutes and then take three to five minutes to just walk around, take a breather, regroup. But they found something that is also, they found something that is very helpful for people on the spectrum is 45-15. And that's because 45 minutes is long enough for your hyperfocus to latch onto it. But it's just short enough that if you have an alarm that goes off after 45 minutes, you can generally gauge pretty accurately if you can really withstand another 45 minutes of this after your 15 minute break. And even if you miss and you end up going too long, it's only 45 minutes. It's not five hours too long. And I found that ever since I started kind of adopting that kind of idea, my practice has become much more productive. And sometimes my break isn't even stepping away from the instrument. Sometimes I'll just stay there and I'll either just listen to the sounds in the room or my break will even still be playing. I'll play 45 minutes of rap and then improvise for 15 minutes and then be like, okay, Peter, it's time to take a look at your um, Bartok suite again. And what's nice is because improvisation is definitely, it's definitely my biggest hyper-focus because it's, and I say that because it's the one that I work with the most and the one that I do the least consciously but just giving myself kind of a space to play here and there allows me to not lose motivation as quickly I'd say like the issue is the issue when it comes to you hyper focusing on your work is that you often go way too long like I was talking about earlier how I find myself seven hours later and sometimes the ability to do that really helps I once um, was, long story short, writing a piece as a creative project for my English class and had procrastinated the time leading up to the deadline. And I managed to put in, and I ended up just putting in a 13 hour session a few days before it was due. And I think that was really great that I was able to do it. But the issue was that I didn't open Sibelius for like three weeks after that. So it's not sustainable. Long bouts of hyperfocus are not sustainable at all. And we often can't control when we slip into it because it feels, because it's a very natural progression. This interests you. So you want to learn the next part of the thing that interests you. You want to see the next part. You want to see what happens next. Imagine if reading a music theory textbook felt like reading a Stephen King novel or one of James Patterson's more action-based, like a suspense kind of situation. That, if music theory is your hyper-focus, that's what it feels like. And it can go really far, really quickly. So I would also, if you're, let's say, teaching a student and it seems like they're kind of losing their themselves as they're going through, 
then it's also kind of okay to give them the tap on the shoulder. Like you can tell them to practice more. You can tell them, you can tell them to practice more, but you can also tell them to practice less or practice smarter or whatever. I find a big issue with current music pedagogy is the amount that people focus on how many hours a day the student is playing. Um, and I get it. Most students need to practice a certain amount. But there will be some that need to practice less, some that need to practice more. And there will be some that if they practice more, it will actually hurt them more than it helps. Like, I found when I first came to Crane, I was trying to put in long hours. I was trying to practice more, practice more, whatever. My first three semesters here really were not that good pianistically. Like, I'm not going to lie, I failed my first level attempt because I would because I burnt myself out so much at the beginning of each semester that by the middle of the semester, I like could barely bring myself to work on my rep pieces. Last semester, I went into the practice room every time I practiced. And Dr. Talk, if you're watching this, don't worry, I didn't only do this amount. But I went in with the thought of 30 minutes in my head. Because if I wasn't particularly in the mood to do it, I could just be like, just a few minutes, whatever. And then it would always turn into like an hour and a half, two hours at least. Add in a smaller session later in the day after I've had some time to like, you know, think about it. That's two and a half to three hours. I was getting the amount that I originally sought to practice without even realizing it because I was going in thinking 30 minutes, I would cut myself off after two hours and I'd have the motivation to go in later that day, go in the next day it wasn't a big commitment. And I found a lot of people on the spectrum that I know tend to have a similar issue where a lot of times when executive dysfunction affects commitment, specifically commitment to self, like I can show up for anything that anyone asks me to, but I can't make commitments to myself for my own improvement. So just doing small little things, committing to five minutes instead of three hours, you might go the three hours and then your alarm rings saying, hey, if you're still in here, leave so you can come back tomorrow. Like, that's really important. And I would discuss that with any students that have either autism or ADHD or anything that hyper-focuses. Because while their executive dysfunction might not play into it as much, making it as much of a hurdle as it was for me, just understanding how they work and setting reasonable boundaries for it could really help them a lot. Sorry, I know we're running short on time and I know we wanted to talk about, um, I know Angie, you wanted to talk about a couple things related to like self-image and um, Yeah, but I also want to talk about my practicing habits yeah. first. So when I was younger, going back to like when I was like in third grade, I focused on working on my, my uh, violin teachers, like my first one, his name was Peter. Um, and he, I had a bunch of them named Peter, actually. <laughs> and, um, there's nothing uh, wrong with a Peter. <laughs> I know all the, my violin teachers up to like college were named Peter. Uh, so, um, my first Peter, he, uh, let me focus on, uh, learning Disney music and Disney songs and stuff like that. Cause that was one of my hyper focuses and it helped me practice better and smarter. And now that I'm in college, my professor first semester, I had pretty rough first semester. Like everybody that's close to me can know it. 
uh, it was really, really hard for my mental health and adjusting to living on my own and living far away. And uh, my violin teacher, second semester, realized that and tried to help me practice more. She gave me the 45-15 thing, but then she also said what might be better for me would be 15-5, doing that three times. And that nice. one worked amazing for me. And now I, what I do now is I practice for 15 minutes three times with three different things. Even though that's only 45 minutes practicing, it's 45 minutes of effective practicing. And I give myself, I can do that three times a day if I, if I need to or want to. And that's that, the key. And that gives me, I don't get sick of it. And I still give myself one rest day a week. But when I practice like that, I feel a lot more effective. And it's still about three hours of practicing, a little under three hours of practicing, like two and a half. But it gives me not to get tired of it and it gives me effective practicing with breaks because I always do 15 minutes then I take my five minute break 15 minutes five minute break because I just with like ADHD and stuff like that I always get so distracted so easily in my practice room if I am in the middle of something playing a note and then I get distracted that doesn't work for me I need to practice for 15 minutes then my alarm goes off take a break and then I just keep on doing that and it makes the time go by so fast. It's so more effective. So that one really helps me. And um, I forgot what else I was going to talk about. I actually had a question about something that you brought up earlier. Because I thought it was really interesting. Um, because it's actually really common for a lot of disability, sadly, due to cognitive differences in the brain between men and women in general. Oh, yeah, that's so, so disability that. projects very differently across both genders. I'd love to hear more about that. Okay, so what I know personally is that it's easier to find disabilities in men than women, and it's harder to figure out what women have for disabilities and diagnosing them and uh it's actually sh shook me when I found out I got diagnosed before Peter because if you look at me it's really hard to see and you, you have to like actually really know me or talk to me to figure out I have a disability because when I talk I like jumble up my words I talk really fast and you can like tell because I'm just like very hyper and just like my words just go out so fast that it's hard to understand me. And Don't uh, call me out like that. <laughs> I'm calling myself out here. Peter, do you want to talk about that? The cognitive differences? Um, no, no, no. The mic is yours. I was, I, I was just feeling called out on that one. <laughs> I'd actually like to add a little bit because I I've like read a lot of information about this kind of stuff, like in regards to dyslexia, but I'm sure it's like the same in comparison to other disabilities because of just cognitive difference between men and women. Um, from what I found from like research and stuff like that, the reason why most of the time women do not get diagnosed, especially with cognitive disabilities as early as men and other instances is because I guess that we have like this thing in our brain or something that like we easily adapt quicker so it makes it seem like we're passable enough 
if that makes any sense, which is really horrible. So then we just can I say something? Diagnosed. <laughs> okay, so when I was getting diagnosed with anxiety, they thought I had stomach issues. They thought I was exactly. trying, I was making everything up in my head. And when I was getting diagnosed with everything, they thought everything was being made up in my head. And that's why I'm also diagnosed with what's it called? I forgot what it was called. It's like thinking I'm sick when I'm not sick. Exactly. I'm actually diagnosed with that. I forgot what it was called, but I have that in my like health records and stuff. And, uh, but I feel like it's not really anymore. It was more when I was younger because they thought I, before I was diagnosed with all my disabilities and like mental uh, stuff, they just thought I was making everything up and I was put on medications I didn't need. I was put on ulcer medication and stuff like that when I didn't need it. And that's very, very toxic to your body if you don't need that stuff. And because they thought I had stomach issues and it was really anxiety and they thought I had stomach issues when it was really beginnings of an eating disorder. They thought all of that stuff and that's how I started hyper-focusing on my uh, body and image like that was because my stomach felt so bad after all of that stuff, I stopped eating, which is another whole story for another day, but it's really big and it's a big issue with like, especially um, autism in girls and like any disabilities in girls because it can just make it a way larger issue and just go through their whole lifespan it's it's astoundingly ridiculous that this is something that happens especially now that research knows that disability appears differently in women and most of the research that is done about disability is on men which is why these bases are made and why so many women are not diagnosed because they're like you don't fit to the standard that we fit that are literally all men with diagnoses of men even though your brains are literally different and it's like you need to expand a little bit more so that we can give people the correct diagnoses and not be giving them things they seriously do not need and it's just going to continue to harm them it's very problematic so when i was younger i went to family therapy which is very common with people with autism because it can destroy a family, especially it really had an impact on my family, particularly because mine was very extreme with the outburst and still is. I still deal with autistic outbursts as a 19 year old female, but I just hide them better. Honestly, I deal with outbursts occasionally too. I deal with them. I used to deal with them when I'm at home twice a day as long and they turn into panic attacks mine so it's not the funnest thing ever but when I was younger they wanted to put me on Zoloft I was on Zoloft for almost eight years and one medication for eight years especially a psych medication is not good for your brain because it just makes it the new normal and then it doesn't work anymore so I didn't take it until I was in eighth grade but I tried it, but I was scared of swallowing pills. So that was another issue. And um, so I started taking eighth grade and I didn't stop taking it until uh, my freshman year of college. So 
and then I got on new medications that really help. And another thing is with ADHD and autism and anxiety, the medications very are not good for each other. If you take ADHD medicine and you have anxiety and autism, it like contradicts it. So I had to put up, be put on high blood pressure medication to try to deal with my hyperactivity. And that made me really drained out my like, uh, it made my blood sugar and my blood pressure go too low to the dangerous limit to try to make me calm down more. And if I had any caffeine and because I love caffeine, it is one of my hyper focuses. If I had caffeine, it made it even lower because caffeine and ADHD is the opposite effect. So it made me pretty sick just having like one of those medications because they don't know what to do with certain medications and combining them. That's about it. And they also, uh, you don't want to get medicated at a young age because of puberty. So that's a big one. Yeah, it's, it's not just that. Like, if you get medicated at too young of an age, it literally, I'm pretty sure, alters your brain makeup. Because that's like, when you're like in that adolescent stage, even when you come out of the womb, your brain is not fully developed yet. And adding the medication to change those neurons are going to change so many different things. And in some instances could cause more issues depending on whether the diagnoses were correct or not, regardless, um, which is also a problem. Yeah, that's probably why they didn't diagnose me with things until I needed that specific diagnosis. Because like for me, I have four things that I definitely, that I know I could have been diagnosed with. I only have one diagnosis and none of them required meds. As a result, um, they didn't want to medicate me because, you know, they didn't think I needed medication at that age and it would have done more harm than good. I know people who were put, I know a lot of people actually who were put on ADHD or anxiety or depression meds when they were like 10 years old. and most of them have had some kind of issue form because of that. Like, one of my friends had to go off his ADHD meds when he hit puberty, and all of his teachers thought he had Tourette's because his brain learned that that was the new normal, like, that the meds were the new normal, and then he went off of them, and he couldn't, one, couldn't focus on anything, and two had no filter between his brain and his mouth. I have and no filter. I literally have zero filter and knows me. have no filter. I literally right in my mouth and right out. And it's really bad, especially when it's like talking about like professors, teachers and stuff like Yeah, I get that. I didn't have a filter when I was younger, but like, I can at least filter some things out and I'm really happy that I can. I wish I could still. I can't. 
I've never had a filter, and I don't think I will at this point in my life. And I'm just used to it, and all my friends are used to it, too. They're like, Angie, that's something you don't tell people in public. No, this is something you don't say in public. Nobody wants to know this about you. Oh, I get that. The, like, um, one day I didn't give enough information, so the next day I give way too much. Because I don't naturally know where the line is. So I'm just like, oh, there's a line of not enough information. Okay, let's spill everything. I cross the line every day. It's... What's crazy is that, the, what's like crazy good is that um, my friends are used to it, mm-hmm. one, and two, um, my best friend also has a lot of similar issues from ADHD, which means we can really butt heads sometimes, because like, if one of our, like, if like one of my stims is like causing like an issue, on, you get the idea, but like, yeah. you know, if one it's of my really things nice is causing you have a problem, to... oh, sorry, yeah, you can go, I don't know, I just found that, like, oh, what was it, I lost my train of thought of it, um, it's really nice when you have someone who, like, gets it, and is just completely fine with everything that you spew, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna actually go off of that, uh, it's really nice having all your friends be so supportive like all my friends even my boyfriend is just so supportive of me and he knows that (laughs) I can be a lot (laughs) like I am a lot sometimes because I just say whatever's on my mind or I usually mask I'm a big masker of my emotions my feelings when stuff gets too much and I get scared to say it out loud so I either say too much or I say nothing at all and there's no in between so sometimes I have to spew everything at him once when I get too, uh, like, uh, brain overload and I have so much caught up and I just have to tell him everything at once and it could be a big mental wreck on him. I feel so bad, but with all my friends, they're just so supportive and that like really, really has helped, especially in going into college, have, making all really supportive friends and everybody that just understands me. Honestly, um, that kind of reminded me when you were like, and then you just dump all of it onto him. I get that. It's like, if anyone knows the metaphor that a lot of like neurotypical people tend to use for like letting out emotions, like you have the bucket and then the things like all the like negative things go into the bucket. And um, then eventually it starts overflowing and whatever. I think for both of us, when it starts overflowing, it doesn't overflow. The bottom of the bucket just falls right out. Like, it just breaks. <laughs> like, yeah. there's, no, there's no overflowing. It's like sealed at the top. It just flat out breaks and just gets everywhere. And it's like, okay, here is every emotion that I've bottled up in the past six months about people that you don't even know. Um, yeah, that literally then, happened like two days ago to me. Yeah. And then, like, you get halfway through, and you get, like, halfway through telling all of it, and you kind of, you know, get some of yourself back, like, you're not just pure anxiety at this point, but you're still somewhat anxious, and now you're like, oh, no, I just, like, spewed all this information at this person. 
Oh, no, I don't know if no, this no, happens no, no, to no. you. They're not going to want to talk to me anymore. Yeah. Do you ever over-apologize? Because that's a big issue of mine. I over-apologize. I say I'm sorry to everything. Every once, little per- thing. I once I do. apologized I to my music stand when it fell on me. I've done that. <laughs> I apologize was... to my pillow before I got a concussion before because it fell on the ground and I had to pick it up. And uh. then I fell on the ground and I couldn't get up. <gasps> oh my. I. It's funny. When I was in high school, I was in jazz band. I was playing trumpet in jazz band because my friend Steven is just like an insanely good jazz pianist. And so, you know, the way we set up, we were just in a classroom, not one, like we were like in a classroom and we had the trumpets, trombones, saxophones, you know, on one side and then the rhythm section facing. And every single time the band would be cut off, immediately both Steven and I would just go, sorry. (laughs) Our director eventually like was like, Cut off before the apologies before like the apologies start. You you two better not say it and just like scan around the room. <laughs> and it's like for me, Stephen got the memo. I did not, because you know he's just overly apologetic. I'm over here just like I'm just over here like even if he says it isn't me, people always said it wasn't me when it really was me. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> overthinking is really really a big issue. <laughs> Yeah, it is. I overthink everything. I overthink making my coffee in the morning. When you become... Imagine becoming, like, a coffee snob and being, like, okay, I'm going for, like, a 15 to 1 ratio. So, oh, no, I poured in two extra grams of water. It's going to be weak. What do I do? Like, (laughs) I get that. Even with the Keurig, like, when I used to use one, it was like, I would put the water in, put the pot in, and then suddenly, like, this was back in my Keurig days, I would be like, no, I put in the water, right? <laughs> like, I have to fill mine to a certain point. I have to make sure it's always filled completely. Like, right now, it's not filled completely, and it's bothering me, my Keurig. For me, um, I obsessively check for my wallet keys and phone when I'm somewhere else. Like, if I leave my house and, like, I feel when they're not in my pocket. So if I, let's say, have my phone in, like, a phone mount to be used as a GPS, the entire time that I'm driving, my, like, right leg, right where the pocket is, is, like, red alert. You forgot your phone. Your keys aren't in your pocket either. Of course they're not. They're in the ignition. Like, it's annoying. (laughs) Or if I leave without my AirPods. It's funny because, like, I'm not the kind of person who needs to be listening all the time. But even if I know I'm going to have zero use for them, if I leave without them, it's like a panic attack because I don't feel them in my pocket. And that's enough. Like, (laughs) That's me with my phone. Yeah. I'm not even addicted to my phone. It's just if I don't have it on me, I freak out. That's me with that's me with like my watch. Like I don't need a watch. I'm kind of addicted to my phone. I'm like halfway addicted to it. With me too. Watch, though, with my watch, if I'm not wearing a watch, I feel it. 
and I am uncomfortable the entire day. It doesn't matter which watch I'm wearing. It doesn't need to be the Apple Watch. It can be one of my citizens. And if there isn't, it's like the sky is falling. Yeah, for me, it's like even when I'm going to bed, I need to be with my stuffed animals. I can't sleep without any stuffed animals. I have two with me right now. I have to have them with me at all times. If I forget, when I was little, with my little cat, stuffed animal, if I lost it, my mom, I once lost it in Boston, and my parents had retraced their steps to find it. So they bought me another one. I threw a fit, and they literally looked all over Boston to find it, and I couldn't sleep until they found it. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, for for me- reference, I'm from Massachusetts. I'm not from New York, so Boston's not that bad. Okay. Yeah, I was getting a bit worried. Um, with me, um, I didn't bring any of my Build-A-Bears with me, of which I have nine. <laughs> um, but Build-A-Bears are bad addiction for me. I need to have plush toys with me. If you see back there, oh wow, I just did the thing that no actor does and faced away from the camera. Um, if you see back there, I have two narwhals and a bear in a dragon costume. And... <laughs> They go with me everywhere. To be fair, um, to, um, one of them is like the welcome week, not the welcome weekend, like the parents weekend Build-A-Bear that I built with my parents. And the other two are like um, gifts from, like gifts from people. So different people. I know they're both narwhals. I was gifted narwhals by two different people and I love it. So, as we're reaching the end of the podcast, we had a lot of wonderful discussions. I actually enjoyed hearing about some of the discussions that we had, because there were definitely, like, some things that I didn't think about. So, it was really nice to hear about it. Um, Are there any last words in general that you would like to to say maybe to, like, someone, like, a music teacher or, like, maybe something that you feel like when you were young and in that predicament, you would have wanted to hear just literally anything. It gets better and just to be patient. It definitely has gotten better and you've learned to figure out how to live with it and embrace it rather than live with it and try to run away from it. And a disability is not a disability. It's just uh, something special that you have. Honestly, I agree. Um, You kind of put the nail right on the head. Like it gets better. Also, it's, no, you're not a problem. But also, what I would say to a teacher, please be patient. The student that has this probably dislikes the thing that they just did that annoyed you 50 times more than you dislike it. And if you don't respond to it constructively, it will turn into a hundred. Like a word of warning to any teachers out there, just please be patient with be patient with people on the spectrum. Our emotions tend to be very fragile and we tend to be very easily influenced by those around us, even if it doesn't look like we are. So I think just they will get there eventually and when, when they do, it'll be great. So just try to give them the tools to get there and 
you know, you can take a step back and just take a breather and whatever. Like, you matter in this equation too, but just try to be there for them because they legitimate, they most likely legitimately want to be there for you. And if they can't be, like, it's really not their fault. Not even so. I'm not saying to blame anyone. There's just no blame here. We all want to blame someone, and there is literally no one to blame in this circumstance. Even like with parents, this is what I want to say. Just to any parents out there, please just try not to make it so you think, tell your, telling your kid that they're the problem because they're not. And I wish I was told this when I was younger that we aren't the problem and that we aren't messed up. We are still, we aren't not normal. I just hated always being figured out like that I was a problem and I was the issue and everything. I wish I could just was told I am okay, I am gonna be good and I'm gonna grow out to be something amazing. Like that's what I wish I was told as a kid and not been like always put down or talked down to. I just want every parent out there to make sure your kid feels like a million bucks because they deserve it. Because uh, living with autism is really hard. One final thing is kids with autism have a really higher suicide rate, especially girls with autism. It's like a 95% chance of suicide. And uh, so I'm still here and it's sometimes a miracle that I am, but it's amazing that how much uh, friends and uh, other people can impact your life, even in a positive and negative way with parents and everything. So that's my final word. One final thought from me is that, yeah, that's a, the rates of suicide are extremely high. The rates of other things that also <laughs> that also have high rates of suicide alone are also extremely high. Um, and one final thing, just to bring it back to the context of music, because I know the podcast title. Um, if you're trying to teach music to an autistic student, they will most likely not learn in the way that your like practicum class taught you to teach them. I so if you're trying to teach them, find there's gonna be something in there. If they want to do music, there's gonna be something about it that you can latch on to. They're not just gonna join a music class and be completely disinterested. If you're like a band teacher where it's their choice, find the thing. It could be theory. It could be whatever. I, I don't know. Mine was theory. That was a pretty easy one for me to list. I don't know. I'm socially awkward. I couldn't tell what the other kids were when I was that young. Um, Mine was uh, just sound. Time. Yeah, theory, sound. Even the feeling of playing the instrument, honestly, the feeling of pressing the keys on a piano is almost as therapeutic as the music itself. Like, Find whatever they latch on to, and both of you will thank you for it. Since we are done with our final thoughts, this is the end of the podcast. Thank you for coming this week. 
Thank you, Angie and Peter, for coming on and talking to me. Had great conversations. Um, join us next week where we're, I'm going to be talking to Keely, I believe her name is. She's from California, and we'll be talking about POTS and other disorders. So it's going to be really interesting. So stay tuned.